dialogue that happens between them. Luke is also different because it tells us that one of the criminals ends up having a change of heart that leads to a change of eternity for him. And Luke is the only one that tells us that. Now, some people will point out this difference and they'll call it a contradiction. Okay, and they'll say, now, here's a difference that we find between the Gospels. The details here are different. So, therefore, if there's a difference, there must be a contradiction. And they use this as a way of continuing to plant seeds of doubt in our hearts and our minds about whether or not we can trust the Gospels. Okay, about whether or not we can trust Scripture. So, let me challenge that point real quick. Okay, here's the thing. If I am accused of a crime and the police come and begin to question me, all right? And they're questioning me and they're questioning Jason and they're questioning Justin and they're questioning Derek, all right? And they think that all four of us are involved in this crime and they begin to press us on that. They separate us out and they begin to ask us, okay, what happened? What did you see? If in that moment when we start to give our own eyewitness accounts of what happened, if those stories match up perfectly, if all of the details are exactly the same, then do you know what the police would say to us? You're under arrest. All right? That's what they would say because they realize, a trained investigator realizes That when a person gives their eyewitness account of something that happens, then some of the details are going to be slightly different because you're telling it from your own perspective. You're saying what you saw, not just what this person saw. So if we had the same story, then they would say, here's what you guys did. The four of you knew you were guilty, so you got together and you created a story as a cover-up. And you made sure all of the details lined up perfectly so your story was airtight, your story was perfect, and you tried to hide behind that story. These differences here, scholars tell us, these differences actually give another piece of weight to the authenticity of the Gospels. They claim to be eyewitness accounts. And so what we get are a little bit of different details because we're seeing it from the perspective of different people. Does that make sense? All right, great. Now listen, if you've got questions about that kind of thing, and if there's something that you're wrestling with, then please don't ever hesitate to bring that to us and talk to us about that, okay? Um, You're going to hear a lot of different things from people around you, and so we want to be able to be another voice speaking in to that conversation. We might not have all the answers, but we will work through that together, okay? We'll research that together, and we are here to help you wrestle through those things, okay? So don't ever be afraid of your questions. Bring them to us. Let's work that out together. Awesome. So what we have here is actually another piece. It's a this kind of subtle kind of sign of the authenticity of the Gospels yet again. Okay, one more seed of truth there that we see. Okay, so two other men, it says, were they're both criminals, were also led out to be executed with Jesus. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the first statement 
that he makes. And we unpacked this last week. What a powerful moment. Jesus forgiving the very people who are putting him to death. And that statement he makes echoes all the way to every single one of us. Every single one of us. It's one thing for Jesus to preach, love your enemies from the safety of a hillside. It's completely different for him to say this and for him to enact forgiveness with his dying breaths on the cross. This is real. Jesus is who he said that he was. It says that the soldiers divided up his clothes by casting lots. They're gambling over the clothes of Jesus. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. You can hear the mockery in their voices when they say that. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there Hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. If you've noticed, this is the third time in a row right here that Jesus gets questioned in this same way. That Jesus gets mocked and insulted in this same way. If you really are the Christ, the religious leaders said, then save yourself if you're the chosen one. And then the soldiers do it, it said. They say the same thing. And now even this criminal being crucified with Jesus, the third one, says, save yourself and us if you really are who you say that you are. Three denials that Luke gives us right here. It goes right in line with the three denials of Peter. It goes right in line with what we talked about last week, the time that the crowd three separate times says, give us Barabbas. And crucify Jesus. Luke lays out this pattern. Because it's a pattern in the story. But it's also a pattern in us. Peter's sin is not his sin by himself. It's ours too. And that pattern is in us. To deny as well. It goes on and says this. The other criminal rebuked him. And said don't you fear God. Since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So powerful, so powerful that he says that. The others do not recognize who he is, and they say, if you're really the Christ, then save yourself. This criminal seems to recognize that Jesus is the Christ And that's why he won't save himself, but sacrifices himself so that he can save all of us. The criminal catches a glimpse of who Jesus is, and it stirs this repentance in his heart. He's just heard Jesus breathe these words of, Father, forgive them. And it stirs him to the point of repenting for his own sin and asking Jesus to save him. It's powerful. It's powerful. The others were looking for a miracle as a proof, right? Save yourself. But he sees the miracle that's right there next to him. And he's heard Jesus whisper these words, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And he is convinced. It stirs him to repentance. He sees who Jesus is. One of the great theologians in the history of the church was a man named John Calvin. And he said this about this criminal. How clear... 
was the vision in his eyes. He could look at death and see life. He could look at ruin and see majesty, at shame and see glory, at defeat and see victory, at slavery and see royalty. I question if ever since the world began, there has been so bright an example of faith. He seems to be the only one who understands what is happening in this moment. He seems to be the only one who gets it. The only one who gets it. Not even his disciples get what is happening. We've already seen back in Matthew chapter 20, there's another moment where they talk about Jesus remembering them when Jesus comes into his kingdom, right? He's not, this criminal is not the first person to have that request. If we go back to Matthew chapter 20, there's this moment where James and John send their mother to go make a request to Jesus, right? Isn't this great? Hey, mom, coach isn't playing me enough. Go tell him to put me in the game, okay? So they go, the the mother of James and John goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I have a request, one request. It's a humble request, right? And Jesus says, what is it? What is it that you're asking for? And she says, when you come into your kingdom, will you see to it that my two sons, James and John, are seated in the places of honor, one at your right hand and the other at your left hand? Where are the criminals in this picture when Jesus comes into his kingdom? They're at the right and the left. Jesus, knowing what is coming, says to her and to the sons, you don't even know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And James and John both speak up and they're like, yeah, definitely. We can drink the cup, right? Let us sit with you in this place of honor. Let us be at the right and the left. And Jesus says, indeed, you will drink the cup. That I am about to drink. And it's true. James ends up becoming the first out of the 12 disciples who is martyred for the cause of Christ. John becomes the last of the disciples to die for the cause of Christ. It's interesting how that plays out. Jesus says you will drink the cup. But you don't even have a clue right now what you are asking. We don't understand what it looks like for Jesus to come into his kingdom But this criminal got it in a way that not even the disciples understood it. And in that moment, he says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then Jesus makes this incredible statement to him. Through the pain, the excruciating pain of the crucifixion, he speaks these words of compassion to this criminal. The last person there who deserved to hear that. But he looks at him and he says, today... You will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. What a promise. So what we're going to do over these next few minutes together is we're going to unpack this sentence. We're going to go kind of old school Bible study style, right, and and circle some of these key words. And we're going to start from, from, uh, go backwards, right, from the last word and then then work our way up that way. So we're going to start with this last word in the sentence, the word paradise. Circle that word paradise. And let's unpack what Jesus is saying here. As we've already talked about, we've all got our preconceived notions of what paradise looks like for us, right? If we're designing it, then we've got our ideas of what that will mean. But here's the deal. 
This word paradise is actually borrowed from a Persian word that means forest, like, like get in your mind like this beautiful kind of grove type of idea. Or even deeper from this Persian word is the idea of a garden. A garden. That's what paradise means. Do you see the biblical connection with that statement, right? It echoes back to the Garden of Eden. And what Jesus is saying to him is that today you will be with me in paradise. Today the relationship that was broken in the garden will now be restored and you will be brought back into the garden. That's what paradise is. That is it. That's what paradise is. We have all of these different ways of defining it. But the word paradise here in this statement actually hangs on these next two words that we're going to look at. Circle these words, with me. With me, Jesus says. That is what makes paradise paradise, okay? We have all of these ideas of what heaven is going to be like. But the best thing about heaven It's not the absence of pain. It's not the absence of sorrow. It's not even the absence of sin and death. The best thing about heaven is the presence of God. It's the garden all over again. We're brought back into a fully restored relationship with God and with each other. That is our great hope and our great promise of heaven. That is what makes heaven heaven. That is what makes heaven, heaven. It's back into the garden. Now, here's the flip side. The reverse of that statement is also true. The reverse of that statement is also true. Here's what we need to grasp today. We believe in hell. Hell is real. And real people go there. And that should crush us. We should not hear that statement and feel some sort of like contentment about our place. We shouldn't hear that statement and get upset by it. We should, we should, we should hear that statement and be crushed by it. We should have our hearts broken by this idea. Some of us have our doctrine of hell airtight. We can debate somebody all day long about what hell is going to be like, Right? But you haven't lost a wink of sleep over real people who are going there. Then you don't really believe in it. I don't care how well you can debate it. You don't believe in it. If your heart's not broken over the real people who are going there. Well, now this is not really a Jesus message. is isn't talking about hell. Like, come on, this needs to be peace and love, right? Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the entire Bible. Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person because his heart was breaking for it. And he was willing to lay down his life and go through the unthinkable in order to rescue us from it. Jesus spoke about it more than anybody else. And when Jesus talked about it, he talked about it with tears in his eyes. Here's the thing. The worst thing about hell is not the presence of suffering. It's not the presence of fire. It's not the presence of Satan. The worst thing about hell is the absence of God. That is what makes hell truly hell. That is what makes it hell. And that is what should break our hearts. In fact, 
if when we talk about your idea of paradise and you've crafted this perfect vision of what paradise is looking like for you, if it's missing God, then what you've just imagined is an eternal hell. What makes hell hell is the absence of God. Some Christians get pretty obsessed with the idea of hell. They seem to enjoy talking about it. Some people preach about it with thunder in their voices, calling that courageous. But when Jesus talked about it, he did it with tears in his eyes. He was heartbroken over it. We see Jesus looking out over the city of Jerusalem when he's about to make his way to the cross, and his heart is crushed, and he is weeping over the city. When's the last time you wept over your city? When was the last time you wept for the people who are around you every single day? Please spare everyone your rants about where culture is headed if you haven't even wept over your city. Let God break your heart for real people. Let it crush you. It did, Jesus. C.S. Lewis said that you have never met a mere mortal. You have never in your life met a mere mortal. Every person that you meet, every person you encounter, every person has an eternal destiny. Every single one. There's no such thing as a mere mortal. Now, for some of us, our justice radar is going off right now. All right. Anybody with me on that? I sense that. I feel that. Right? We have this sense of justice, and we're like, no, this isn't fair. Like, let, like hell is not a fair idea, but it's, it's, if you want to know what the justice of God looks like, look at the cross. Look at the cross. The most innocent person to ever live, the only person who didn't deserve it, went through it to save us from it. That's the reality of the cross. And that is the justice of God playing out right before our eyes. It is what we all deserve. But Jesus took that on himself and took it off of us. He took our place. The reality is this. As humanity, we're the ones who created the separation between us and God. It's our sin that created that separation. But Jesus has placed his life in that gulf. And he is hanging in the balance between heaven and hell. He loves us so much he's willing to go to hell and back to rescue us. And to bring us back into reconciled relationship with him. Continuing with C.S. Lewis, he said this about hell. It's from a book called The Great Divorce. I really challenge you to read it. It's one of his greatest stories that he wrote. It's beautiful. He said this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says, thy will be done. He goes on to say that hell is locked from the inside. Because of the cross... Jesus has placed himself in the gap. He is hanging in the balance between heaven and hell. And he's given everything to ensure that we would be rescued. Here's the thing, guys. You know me, and you know that I'm not preaching on hell as a way to scare anybody into the kingdom of God. All right, everybody just take a deep breath, okay? 
You know me. You know that that's not me. And on top of that, that's just a stupid thing to do anyway. It's stupid. And here's the problem with it. If we talk about hell as a way of scaring people into the kingdom of God, then we've twisted the whole idea. If I follow Jesus because I don't want to go to hell, then I have still made the whole thing about me. Are you with me on that? If I, want to, if I follow Jesus because I want to go to heaven, then I've still made the whole thing about me. And that's exactly what got us in this problem in the first place. Humanity was convinced to put ourselves at the center of the story. Pride, it is the original sin. That's what got us in the whole problem to begin with. It's the same twisted sin. It's just wearing a different disguise. It's dressed up in moralistic clothing to make it look more appealing to us. But I still make it about me. And that's still a twisted sin. That's not what we're talking about here. Instead, we need to realize that the motivation is exactly what Jesus has said with those two words we've been talking about. With me. With me. That is what makes it paradise. That is what makes heaven, heaven. It's not the absence of any of those other things. It is the presence of God. To be in a fully restored relationship. To be in Eden all over again in relationship with him and with others. He places his life in the gap and he hangs in the balance between heaven and hell. The next word that we're going to look at, circle the word you, just for a second here. The criminal that we're talking about here that Jesus directs this statement to, that you will be with me in paradise. You've got to get your heads around the fact that this criminal has absolutely no hope of getting his act together. Right? This criminal has absolutely no hope of saying, well, Jesus, just give me some mercy right now, and I promise I'm going to do better from this point forward. There is no point forward for this criminal. It has nothing to do about with him getting his life together. It has nothing to do with him proving that he really means what he's saying in this last-ditch moment. Right? It's all on the grace of Jesus. It's all on the grace of Jesus. And that's the reality for our salvation as well. Our salvation rests on the grace of Christ alone. And this last word we're going to look at, circle the word today. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. There is a deep urgency to this word. There was an urgency for the criminal, of course. This was the day. It was today and there's nothing else. There is no tomorrow for that criminal. It was today. There is a fierce urgency to that word. And there should be for us too. There should be for us too. This is the day. It is today. This is the point of decision. And Jesus is speaking the same thing to us. Come, be in relationship with me. Be in relationship with me. That's the key phrase of the whole thing. With me. He wants to be in relationship with you. I have a challenge for two groups of people today. Number one, I want to challenge you. If you have never started a relationship with Jesus, if you're not walking in a relationship with Jesus today, today's the day, all right? It's now. Urgency. It's now. 
And if that's you and you feel like he is extending that to you right now, as you think about him on the cross, as your heart is stirring at this thought of Jesus speaking forgiveness to the very people who are putting him to death, speaking this promise of paradise to this criminal who does not deserve it. If that is stirring you and you feel like he's speaking that to you as well, then I want to encourage you to do one thing. I just want to encourage you to raise your hand right now and say, I want that. I want to be in relationship with him. Okay, if you feel like God is stirring that in you, then I challenge you to grab somebody after the service. Grab me, all right? Don't leave until we talk today. Or write your name on one of the cards and check the box that says, I want to follow Jesus so we can sit with you and we can talk with you and we can pray through that together. There's a second group of people that I want to challenge today. This is it. This is the end. The second group of people is this. Who, who else is going to raise their hand today? Who's going to raise their hand right now and say, I want my life to be put in a place of influence. I want Jesus to put me in a place where lives are hanging in the balance between heaven and hell. I want to use my life. I want to give everything in my life, my influence, my gifts, my talents, my resources, my money, my time, everything about me. For the cause of bringing people into a reconciled relationship with Jesus. If that's you, then I want you to raise your hand and make that commitment right now. I want you to feel the urgency of that. Amen. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Fantastic. Praise the Lord. This is real. This is real. This is real and it should crush us. It should crush us. There's this quote that I want to close with right now. It's from this old missionary from a hundred years ago. This old missionary, and I've heard this so many times growing up. And whenever I would hear this in a sermon from somebody, I would just roll my eyes, all right? It's the most cliche little poem that I've ever heard. But I've become, I'm coming to realize as I get older, there are a reason, reason that cliches become cliches, right? Most of the time because they're pretty good, all right? And this whole week, I haven't been able to get away from this. But whenever I heard it growing up, I just brushed it off and rolled my eyes. And now it has worked its way into my heart. And I can't believe I'm actually getting ready to share that with you right now. But this is it. And I haven't been able to get away from this all week long. It's this simple little poem. And I want this to be true of us. He said this, some would live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue house within a yard of hell. I want to run a rescue house within a yard of hell. That's what I want to give my life to. The beautiful thing about where we are right now is we actually get both of those. Every Sunday morning as we're setting up for church, we hear the church bells ringing from all around downtown. And it's a beautiful reminder that we are a part of a much bigger story that God is writing in this community. And it's a beautiful reminder that we're a part of a larger mission and we share that mission with the other churches that are in this community. And whether you meet under a steeple or the marquee of a theater, it doesn't matter. Our mission is the same. It's a beautiful reminder every single Sunday morning, and we do live within the sound of the church bell, but we also want to be a rescue house within a yard of hell. Jesus, use us for that. Jesus, spend us for that. Let us be that for people. Let us be that for people. Let this be the place 
where people feel like they can come, when they feel like they've got nowhere else to turn. Let us be that place. And if you want to spend us and use us as a rescue house right on the edge of hell, then please let us be that. Let us be that. Jesus, thank you for the power of your word and for the power especially of these words that we've looked at today. These final words. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the way that you spoke that to a person who didn't deserve it, just like the rest of us. For the fact that you spoke that to a person who was hanging in the balance. Thank you for the beauty of the cross. The way it shows us what your heart of justice looks like. That you would pour yourself out to the fullest extent. To bring us back into relationship with you. You don't give us what we deserve. You give us so much more. You took our place. We thank you for that. Put us in that spot. Let us live in a pivotal kind of place for people. People who are hanging in the balance. Let us be a rescue house. Amen.